Hello church, I'm Annie Robertson. I'll be reading from Micah chapter one and two today. <clears throat> the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valley will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. For this, I will lament and wail I will go stripped and naked and I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. And Bethlehapra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your ways, inhabitants of Saphir and nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Sainan do not come out. The lamentations of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achseb shall be a deceitful thing to the king of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, or they shall go to you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, for it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portions of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostle, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. 
You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanliness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go out and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Good morning, Dwarf Hope Northeast. It's good to be with you through the screen here. Hey, before we jump into the book of the prophet Micah, which which uh, please turn there if you haven't already. Um, but, but as you're turning and before we jump in, I, I just want to take a note and... Uh, acknowledge that, of course, this week, um, our presidential election, as well as a number of local elections, are, are happening uh, on Tuesday. And it's obviously been an incredibly intense uh, political season, uh, full of lots of things, but uh, at least <laughs> lots of vitriol and, and bitterness. Um, and you are not going to find me using the digital pulpit here to tell you who to vote for. Um, but but I, I do want to plead with you and, and plead with myself to do uh, two things. One's related to how you vote and one's related to how you enter kind of political discourse uh, as the results of these elections start coming in after the election. So um, number one, I just want to plead with you to vote uh, or, or, or don't vote in as a holistic, informed prayerful and compassionate way as you can. If it's true that, that King Jesus has us all on a journey of more and more learning to submit every corner of our hearts and our lives and our minds to him, um, if we're all on a journey of truly making him Lord of every part of our lives by the power of the Spirit, then our call is to make him Lord over whether we vote and precisely how we vote. And hopefully... You recognize that that much to the delight um, of, of the evil powers and principalities influencing this world, issues that God deeply cares about are carved up amongst various candidates and measures and all kinds of things, and, and not necessarily at all in equally weighted ways, uh, but, but they are divided and carved up nonetheless. And whatever the outcomes of these elections, there will be bad news. Um, intertwined for, for many people groups beloved by God, people that were called to love and serve. And the outcomes of, of these elections have deeply felt tangible impacts on us and our neighbors. And so I just ask you to prayerfully bring the fullness of who God is and, and what he's about into this election with you. Don't let sloganeering and oversimplification and radical partisanship rob you of faithfulness um, in the political choices that you make. And the second thing is a, a, a call to respond to the election results um, in a uniquely Christian way. Um, respond in a way that will likely be incomprehensible to the watching world. 
um, hear me very clearly, there is a place for grief or frustration, um, but not a grief or frustration that overtakes our trust in Christ and his promises. And, and there's absolutely a place for, for serious disagreement and, and for trying to change the hearts and minds of, of those who've arrived at different convictions than you politically, but, but not in a way that dehumanizes the other. And there is, of course, a place for just striving to install just policies and politicians, um, but, but not in a way that fails to recognize Jesus as, as the only ultimate and true bringer of justice. And so um, ask God to give you deep convictions and um, ask him to make you uh, an uncommon model of civility during, during this time. Ask the Spirit to make you full of grace and full of truth in the way that Jesus was as he walked amongst us. And remember that whatever the results of the various elections, local and national, our call, um, in the words of Micah 6.8, which we're going to get to eventually here in a few weeks, our, our, our call to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God continues on. Our call to witness to King Jesus um, And his kingdom and his saving work on the cross continues on. And so if you're not already, please pray for our nation. Uh, Pray for our church. Pray for your neighbors. uh, Pray for yourself in the midst of this. Uh, And and whatever happens, our work continues tomorrow. Um, So that's that's all I wanted to say. Probably that's not uh, earth shattering to anybody. Um, but hopefully, hopefully a, a good reminder. I know even in just speaking those things, it's, it's, it chastens me a bit. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, well, we're turning our attention to the, the book of the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. Um, it's a small little book. If, if you don't know where it is, there is absolutely no shame in using your, your Bible table of contents to find it. Um, but uh, before we jump into Micah, I just want to talk talk about a few things by way of introduction. First, um, I want to talk about the, the prophets in general. Um, and so, first of all, for, for the prophets, the, the key background that you really need to know um, is, is one of the main threads of the story of the Old Testament, which is that God had chosen this nation, Israel. Uh, to be a distinct nation that would serve as a beacon to the surrounding nations about who Yahweh, the one true God, was and what he was like. Um, They were to live in a distinct way that that uniquely represented him amongst the surrounding nations. And uh, he made a covenant with them, Uh, several covenants actually, but but the key one, uh, one of the hyper foundational ones uh, is the Mosaic covenant, which included the laws. Uh, which guided the ways in which they were to live and represent God as they went about their lives. Um, and, and not only the laws themselves, but it included these blessings that would come when the nation was faithful to the covenant. Blessing would flow. Uh, but when they were disobedient, when they rejected the covenant, when they disobeyed the covenant, um, there were punishments that were laid out that would come. And so the prophets often entered into this picture um, serving as these sort of outsider like covenant prosecutors in, in many cases. And so outsider in, in the sense that 
they, they didn't hold official religious offices in Israel. Um, they, they were these sort of uh, wild people, <laughs> oftentimes it sort of came out of nowhere, that would uh, prophetically, filled with the words of God, would speak to the formal leaders, the kings and the priests and so on, uh, or the power holders within Israel. And they would, uh, they would bring the covenant back to bear on them. In the words of my professor, Carl Laney, he, he, he says, The prophets served as prosecuting attorneys. They represented God in bringing a case against a nation guilty of violating the covenant. And I think that's a good way to think about them. Um, and they would often include a warning about the coming consequences of, of the fact that they had rebelled against the covenant they'd made with God. Um, I, I want to acknowledge that the, the prophets can be really hard for us to read. Um, because the prophets so often foreground the judgment and justice of God against sin and sinners, they can be distressing reads, especially for like modern Portlanders. Um, and there are things in the prophets, including Micah, that force me um, to, to, to get over my discomfort to preach them in the same way that they're going to force you to get over your discomfort to hear them. Um, so we just acknowledge that up front. Um, and, and so often the things that we're most scared to look at in the scriptures are some of the things we, we most need to hear. Um, but, but always remember the character, um, of God. He's not arbitrary and he's not capricious and he's not without love and mercy and grace and, and God's judgment and rebuke of his people through his prophets is for the purpose of restoring them. It's almost like, it's like an agonizing chemotherapy to, to kill a cancer. Um, in that same way, God has to use extreme measures to humble his people toward repentance, trust, and obedience. Uh, I know that's often the case in my life. Uh, it, takes, it takes serious things to get through to me. So it was with the people of God throughout history. So it probably is with you. And even in, but even in Micah's darkest moments, as we read through, the ultimate message of hope is not far off. And this book functions as these sort of announcements of judgment and the reasons why chronicling Israel's sin, but then always getting to a point of a glimmer of hope about what God is going to do to restore. Um, he never lets that message be too far off. Uh, in this particular book or, or ever, <laughs> really for that matter. Um, Micah the prophet in particular, we don't, we're not given a ton of information about him other than the fact that he was from this town called Morashet, which implies he was an outsider to Jerusalem. Um, another voice, one of these voices kind of from the wilderness coming in um, wild-eyed and, uh, and, and stirring up things in a good way on behalf of God with the words of God put inside of him to proclaim. But the setting that Micah came into uh, is really important to note. He prophesied um, in Judah, it says, in the days of, this is in verse 1, in uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, so those three kings, which marks his ministry between about 742 and 686 BC. So it was a time of, of deep religious idolatry, and social injustice, and, and disregard for the ultimate rule of God amongst God's people. 
And for two centuries, for two centuries at this point, the kingdom of Israel had been divided. Um, since the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. This gets, the language can get confusing here. One of these sub, subdivided kingdoms is called the kingdom of Israel with its capital city, Samaria, and this is in the north. And then there's the kingdom of Judah, whose capital city was Jerusalem, you know, the most central city there uh, where the temple is and so forth. This is part of the kingdom of Judah in the south. Um, and so we've got these two kingdoms that have been operating as rivals for now a couple, couple hundred years. And Micah's prophecy begins with the denunciation of the northern kingdom, but then quickly transitions to and focuses mostly on uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, which holds the city of Jerusalem. And so we're going to jump in. Um, we're going to look at the first two chapters, which, which Annie read for us wonderfully, um, but it's a lot of text to cover. Uh, so we're really going to have to, to pull out the key themes here to move through it. And the first is this, uh, that, that the first thing that gets established is that the God of all creation is coming to be witness and judge. Let me read just verse two, the power of this statement. He says, hear you peoples, all of you pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. It's this idea of, of, of the Lord himself coming from, from his space, from his place out from his holy temple to stand as witness against his people. Uh, him as witness, great. Him as witness against me, that is scary news. Uh, him and all of his perfect knowledge and his impartiality, but his perfect, fierce, loving justice uh, against me is, is a terrifying proposition. Um, and he, he says multiple things. He's, he's not only going to be witness, but he's going to be judge. Verses three and four, he, he, there's these multiple images that talk about him taking everything that's high uh, in, in his, amongst his people, even the mountains themselves, and bringing them low. Everything that's high and lofty and prideful, self-assured, he's going to bring low. Um, he's going to destroy, uh, verse seven hints that he's going to destroy the centers of false worship that had sprung up about. This word high places you read. It's kind of a double entendre to refer to these, these worship sites that were dedicated to, to either false gods or this sort of commingled worship of Yahweh with pagan practices. And he says he's going to destroy these high places, these false centers of worship and the idols that are there and their wages that are there that have been derived from temple prostitution, which, which God forbids, which was an incredibly common uh, pra religious practice then. And it's not just Jerusalem or Samaria, these, these capital cities uh, uh, that he's pronouncing judgment on that are going to experience it. He's going to bring judgment to even the remote towns and the military outposts as well. And we see that in verses 10 through 14. And I just, I love how commentator Stephen Um captured what's going on here. He says, Bethlehafra means the house of dust. That's in verse 10. And what Micah says to them, guess what? You're going to ultimately roll yourselves in dust. He refers to Shafir in verse 11. And this means 
the meaning of that word is beauty town. And yet Micah tells them they're going to live in nakedness and shame. Za'anan means going forth town, but Micah says, do not come out. Beth Ezel means house of taking away, and yet they, quote, shall take away from you its standing place. He goes on, Micah uses deliberate puns describing, to describe the ironic nature of the eventual destruction. The very thing that each place worships will be the source of its destruction and the place where its judgment is most clearly seen. And this will be happening throughout the land that God had given his people. And then he puts this in perhaps the most clear and stark terms in verses 15 through 16. And he says what he's going to do, the form that much of this is going to take, is that he's going to bring a conqueror, a a rival nation, to take them into exile. Um, And tragically, he says that their children will not get to live in the land. And so this is a terrifying announcement here in chapter 1. Um, and he ends with this call for them to lament and to mourn. Now, the idea is that the, the destruction that Micah has announced is so certain that, that now they are to begin to, quote, make themselves bald and cut off their hair. Uh, these physical acts of, of, of mourning and, and, and making what's going on emotionally and spiritually physical. Um, they're to do it as if, as if it's already happened because it's going to happen. And notice as well that for his part, Micah is lamenting as well. Like in verse eight, Micah says, for this, I will lament and I will wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. He's not gloating. He's not gloating over these tragic circumstances. His heart breaks over the tragedy of what God's people have done and what must happen for justice to be done. And I believe in his, in his mourning, in his grief over this, even though he preaches it with full confidence that it's the right thing, I believe he reflects God's heart in this moment. So that is the disaster to come, the destruction announced. But in chapter 2, we get into, uh, he answer, begins to answer something that he's going to answer throughout the book, which is the why. Okay, this sounds horrible. Well, what, what is going on? What, what was it about the state of things, specifically in, in, in the kingdom of Judah and in Jerusalem, uh, that, that brought things to this point where this was how God had to respond? Well, the first reason is that they were deeply engaged in social injustice in the form of economic oppression specifically, I mean, amongst others. Um, But we see that one here most clearly, that, that they jealously covet and steal their neighbor's fields and houses. Verse 2, 2 says, they covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. And so what you have here is, is sort of the, the powerful and the rich um, continuing to covet and steal uh, from those who have less. And a field in this day was, was a person's means of providing for yourself, for your family, for your neighbors. And in an agrarian society, their lives and freedom depended on, on the fields. 
and and it, it speaks also of a kind of generational impact. You, you see this uh, this inheritance language. It's it's oppressing what has been passed down from the previous generation uh, before, and what would otherwise get passed down to the next generation. So it's it's having a generational harm on those who uh, these the, these oppressors are inflicting this upon. We see also that 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 they're stealing from those who peacefully pass by, verse 2-8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. So people just trying to walk by peaceably and uh, you, you, you take the robes from them. Commentator Bruce Waltke says this is probably the wealthy either hiring gangs to rob people of their cloaks or their bailiffs sent by creditors to collect debts who, without warning, roughly seize the debtor's cloaks as pledges. One can hardly walk by these oppressors without being caught up in their web of oppression here. Verse 2-9 mentions a, a, another big piece of this, is that they, they drive women and children out of their homes. Uh, it says, The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. So these two groups of people that at this time, economically, were just particularly vulnerable. Uh, they're being callously driven out. and Their things taken as well. Uh, so there's really just no regard for the kind of deep impact and, and the consequences of what these people are doing uh, to, to those in their midst. And maybe, maybe one of the most telling things about this whole web of sort of economic oppression comes in verse 2 1 chapter 2 verse 1 woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds when the morning dawns they perform it because it's in the power of their hands and what this is telling us is that they don't just stumble into it but these are the, the these power holders are planfully preparing how they will oppress and do evil from from their quiet the quiet of their bedrooms they they premeditate what they're going to do uh, they have the power and the means to do what they want to do and 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 also they they don't need to hide in the shadows the fact that it when it happens when morning dawns we might just read over that but what this means is they don't need to hide in the shadows they can exploit oppress and sin in broad daylight uh, which speaks to the norms and the values of, of, of their day. These kinds of things could be done with, with, uh, without the cover of darkness, so to speak. Um, to summarize all these points, the, the kingdom of Judah had developed a culture of, of ongoing, increasing economic injustice where the wealthy and the powerful actively oppressed the poor in flagrant disregard for the kinds of economic policies and protections that God had commanded to his nation Israel in the law. And that's a big deal to him. But there's another big theme, a twin theme, that, that comes through uh, chapters 1 and 2. And that is uh, the rejection of the truth and religious idolatry. And so Micah has already, we already briefly talked about the high places, these, these various shrines around for the worship of the false gods. And after all that they had experienced of God, they had in places given themselves over to other gods or had begun treating God like one of the pagan fertility gods, making him into what they wanted him to be, 
which again is really just another god. It's another form of idolatry. The nation was practicing literal idolatry and false worship. And, and we do well to remember, just to connect these two things here, that false worship and doctrine are, are intimately tied to false living. And it can go both ways, like a willful choice um, to live in such a way that rejects God's good vision for life often leads to finding a newer, more accommodating God. Or the exotic, exciting draw of a new false God often leads to the rejection and practices that lead to genuine human flourishing as God defines it. And so we often think of them as separate things, but our so-called spiritual lives and, and, and our, our, our actions, our physical lives, our material lives are intimately connected. They're unified. They're one. Um, and that's what this helps us connect. Like this economic oppression is directly tied to the rejection of God as ruler in their lives and his good and righteous plan for how they're to act. So we've got the false worship and the idolatry, but we also see that their teachers and so-called prophets refuse to deliver the truth. Verse 2.6 says, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace, disgrace will not overtake us. The teachers scoff at the idea of preaching things like what Micah is bringing here. They, they wave away the ideas of, of God's justice coming to bear on them specifically. And they exchange the necessary message for the comfortable one. Um, do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Speaking specifically about this forecoming judgment. Say, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that. No, that, that couldn't possibly be for us. I couldn't possibly be what God is like. He wouldn't possibly do that to us. Maybe to them over there. No way to us. Um, so it's a rejection uh, by the prophets to deliver the truth. But then on the flip side, we see that the people prefer to hear falsehoods. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. It's like, you, you all want preaching? How about a demonstration of the benefits of getting fall down drunk? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna muse for a bit on, on wine and strong drink here. And the people would, would clamor for that. The people want to hear lies and foolishness, not the word of the Lord. So, so the error is both with the teachers and with the hearers here. Um, and then just a really powerful summary statement of all of this comes in chapter 2, verse 10, when he says, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. The, the, the summary point here is that... Um, the land that was given to God's people to be sort of this uh, place of, of, of peace and of righteousness and of justice and of holiness and of beauty uh, has been allowed within it. What's been allowed within to fester 
um, is a culture that now makes it a place where there is no rest to be obtained. Because sin has gotten its claws in so deeply, um, there's no place to rest. Everywhere you look is danger. Danger from your supposed brothers and sisters. Um, and then jumping back to chapter 1, the what gets declared is that God has announced that they are now past the point of no return. Chapter 1, verse 8, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Now verse 9, For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So we need to unpack this for a second. The idea here is that in his patience and grace, God had allowed them time to repent and return. There was a time where the wound was not uncurable, where it was in fact curable. And God had been allowing them time to repent and return, but, but he cannot be good and let their sin and injustice go on forever. Um, His patience towards the oppressor runs into his care for the oppressed. And and at some point, he has to intervene. His love for the sinner runs into his love for the victims of that sin. You see what I mean? Try to imagine for a moment what, what the present world or... Um, and our, our future hope as Christians of, of a new heavens and a new earth, what, what these things would look like if God were not set against sin and evil and injustice and death in all their forms. Like what if he would never draw a line and say the evil ends here, no further, it's done. What if he were too timid or too unconcerned to ever stand up against sin? We're not going to, you know, we're not going to take a 10 minute pause here and do that thought experiment. But I, I, I encourage you to think through what, what might that look like? To me, it's a terrifying thought when it's taken to its logical conclusion, um, though it's one that, that, that many, many hold that God couldn't possibly draw that line. Um, God's righteous anger, his wrath, his judgment, these concepts that most of us really don't like to think too much about, they really are an inseparable part of his goodness. You know, his character is unified. Um, in, In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Manley Pippert writes, Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We are dead against whatever is destroying the one we love. So it is for our creator God who loves us. If we're honest... We know that, that we are so often on the side of the oppressor. We're so often 
on the side of the false prophet. We are so often on the side of rebellion against God. We are so often on the side of sin. And, and hear this. If, if God is to be truly just, and I think when any time we, even as a culture right now, people, so many people clamoring for justice to be done, which is a good thing to clamor for. What we're really yearning for is this, is this sort of cosmic justice, the final dealing with sin, the ending of everything that violates shalom. But if God is going to be truly just, if he is going to be truly loving, if he is going to deliver the thing that so many people are claiming, clamoring for, he doesn't only have to deal with them out there. He has to deal with you. And he has to deal with me. No one escapes the tragic reality of the deeply embedded sin in all of our lives. So, so this judgment uh, that, that's not coming, in this case, in, in the book of Micah, to the surrounding nations, it's coming to God's people. It must come to God's people. In the same way that they deserve this judgment, we deserve this judgment, you deserve this judgment, I deserve this judgment. Because I'm complicit and I'm an active participant in what destroys. And what destroys God's good world, what harms his people, what violates his commands, and on and on and on. So, is this the end of the story? God's people failed in their mission to be a priestly nation. They've rebelled against God in sin and oppression. And so uh, he's done with them. Is that the story? No. No, this long section concludes with a vision, however small, of a future hope for the people of God's kingdom. Read chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And amidst all the doom and gloom, for the just reasons we've described, nonetheless, he, he concludes chapter 2 with this, this statement that God is going to assemble them all together. He's going to gather a remnant. and a He's going to be like a shepherd who will shepherd them like sheep in the fold into the beautiful pastures. And, and there's going to be a king who is also the Lord, Yahweh who will lead them into safety and salvation. Which reminds me of kind of Exodus 13, 21, when the Lord would go before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel day by day and night. Um, but this time it's not these abstract things of fire and, and, and smoke. God himself will lead not as those things, but as a king in their midst. 
And historically, there was, you know, kind of a near fulfillment of this when God did, in fact, bring them out of their exile, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom from Assyria and from Babylon. Years later, and he returned them, uh, he returned a remnant to the land uh, in Jerusalem, and they were able to rebuild their lives and rebuild the temple and restart their worship. But this speaks fundamentally of a greater fulfillment that, that we have the unique privilege of, of recognizing from our place in history that the true king who was also the Lord did come even later in the flesh. And it was, of course, Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, who identified himself multiple times as the good shepherd. He's the one who began his public ministry with a reading of Isaiah 61 saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is how Jesus announced the beginning of his ministry. And, and in the most shocking twist imaginable, it, it becomes rote to us. It becomes boring to us, tragically. But then the shocking twist, the perfectly just one, the righteous judge himself, again, stepped out of his holy temple and into the judgment that you deserved and that I deserved and that Israel deserved and that anyone and everyone deserves. He, God himself, drank the cup of God's wrath, punished through execution on a cross outside the city walls. He took the highest position, his highest position. He made himself lowest. He took his infinite strength. He made himself weak. He and all of his sinless righteousness and justice bore the sins of the world. Or as Paul puts it, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To boil all of this down, I think this is true. Because God is good, he must judge. Do you believe that? Because we have sinned, we must be judged. Can you accept that? But because God is full of mercy and grace, he was judged in our place. Can you believe that? Does God hate oppression and injustice and sin? Yes, he does. Thank God he does. Are we oppressive sinners? Yes, we are. Has he made a way for us nonetheless at ultimate cost to himself? Yes, he has. That's the good news. That's the good news. If you want to know him as your king, as the one who, who has opened the breach for you, the one who shepherds you into the pasture, as the one who once and for all takes your sin and gives you his righteousness and a new life with him. The scriptures declare very simply that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And if you've done that, if you did that six months ago, if you did that a year ago, if you did that 30 years ago, if you did that 50, 70 years ago, um, may Micah 1 and 2 drive you to worship him in thankfulness today with a fresh appreciation, both that he is not an indifferent God, but that he's righteous judge. And nonetheless, that he was judged in your place and in mine. May we worship. May we be thankful. May we celebrate that fact. May we praise him. And if you've never done that, today I invite you to believe and to declare that Jesus is Lord, that he loves you, that he has done everything necessary to save you. And then to begin following after him with us in community. That's the invitation. Micah is full of of hard words, um, but God in his grace never leaves us without the promises of his grace and mercy. Um, So may we come to understand and to live into these things over these coming weeks as we continue to hear what God has for us in Micah in a book that's going to make us uncomfortable, um, but that's ultimately going to pristinely present the beauty of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Amen? Amen.